The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by HubSpot. Imagine growing a business with high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, and wildly happy customers. It's not a miracle. It's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today. LinkedIn presents... From entrepreneurship to global business leadership, from challenges to self-discovery to our ever-changing future, what separates those who win and those who get passed by? This is The Yes Factor with Winnie Sun. Have you been told to avoid stress at all costs? That sometimes even experiencing stress can feel like its own failure? But hold up. We know that having stress is totally normal, and it's not reasonable to think that we won't have it in our busy lives. My longtime friend John Lim, who you may recognize from his popular podcast and Twitter following, introduced me to Dr. Deborah Gaboa, who goes by Dr. G. She says, all change is stressful, even the good ones. This is a quote from her new book, From Stress to Resilient. So let's get right to answering this question. Why is change stressful? And what strategy should we deploy to combat stress? Please welcome Dr. G. So welcome Dr. G to the show. How are you? I'm wonderful. Thanks so much for having me back, Winnie. Well, it is such a treat. I mean, I love having you. I know you've, you've helped us so many times on our tweet chat as well. This is a big topic. And, you know, for those of you who say, wow, Dr. G looks really familiar. You've seen her. She's been on to today's show, Good Morning America. She's a resilience expert for the doctors, board certified attending family physician, and she's fluent in American Sign Language as well. Graduate of University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine, Carnegie Mellon. And this is what's really cool. Dr. G, we got to talk about this. Chicago Second City Improv Theater? Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, honestly, that's like that's something that I've always wanted to do. But I'm, I'm so happy to hear that you've done that. We got to talk about that. It was a really fantastic experience. And thanks to everybody in your audience who's welcoming me. I always, it's, you guys have such a warm group here. Well, thank you. We 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 adore you. We appreciate you. And we want to learn from you too. So if you don't mind, maybe you could start with the beginning. We want to talk about the story of how Dr. G came to be this powerhouse in media. Where did this begin? So I'm a family doctor, right? Like you go to your family doctor, I see kids and their parents and their grandparents, and in some cases, their great-grandparents at a federally qualified health center, not real far from my house. I live in uh, in the city of Pittsburgh. And I was lucky enough to get the kind of job as a doctor that I wrote about when I was writing my essay to get into medical school. You know, I was picturing a real small town doctor kind of experience and the opportunity to do house calls and to help people and go into schools and speak and to get involved in people's family structure to understand who was navigating and influencing the choices people were making to live their healthiest life. And I've been lucky enough to do all that. I pictured becoming a doctor when I was a little kid. And then, and some of you might be able to relate, I got to high school and I had to dissect something and it was disgusting. And I thought, oh, well, I obviously can't be a doctor. Not knowing that a lot of kids in puberty have a really strong gag reflex and find a lot of things disgusting that they handle just fine later in life. So I went into theater 
I had been working in theater at my high school and I loved it. And then I found out you could go to college for that. So I did. And I graduated with a bachelor's in drama and I had got some amazing work. I worked at Deaf West Theater Company in Los Angeles. That's why I got my interest in some of my skills in sign language. And I worked at Santa Monica Playhouse and I worked in Wichita, Seattle and Chicago. When I started working in Chicago, one of the jobs that I got, and actually the last job I had in theater for a couple of years was at Second City Improv Company. Uh, it's a long story in and of itself, but it was a really incredible experience. I worked with some amazing people who were not famous at the time, but some of them are pretty famous now. And when I had been there for a couple of years, I realized that I'd kind of peaked in the theater world. I could stay there and it was fantastic. But I thought one of the things I was really interested in was healthcare. I had been volunteering on an, as, on an ambulance as an emergency medical technician, and I loved the urgency and the, the need. So I called up Northwestern's medical school one day. This is before the internet, right? So I get this woman on the phone and I say, hey, I'm thinking of applying to medical school. What's required? Thinking she's going to say, you know, biology and chemistry. And she says, a bachelor's. I said, in what? And she said, college. I said, I totally have one of those. So I did have to take a few science classes while I was applying. And I picked up the rest of the certification I needed to become an American Sign Language interpreter. And then I went to medical school. And once I became a doctor, after a few years of really feeling like, okay, I have a sense of what I'm doing, I started to notice that there was this gap, this gap between helping people feel better and helping them truly be well. And I've never stopped practicing as a physician, but I also, because I worked part-time as a medical doctor, dove into the research on what's in that gap. What's in that gap between getting better from an illness or an injury or a stressor and actually being well. And the medical literature names that gap often as patient resilience, which I'll admit sounds a little bit like a cop-out, I think. <laughs> You know, like doctors are saying like, well, we did our part and the rest is on you. But I thought, what if it's true? What if the difference is resilience? What is that? I know the word. I have a definition in my head. But what do we mean when we apply it to people's mental health and physical health? So I went to some experts and started doing research actually with a doctoral lab at Carnegie Mellon University's business school, because in business, we're really interested in people's resilience and what helps us to navigate change. And I stress that word because it turns out that resilience isn't only about navigating difficulty or adversity. Is it about, it is necessary for navigating all change. Powerful to consider like your background and then the having, well, in some ways it was a, a sort of a pivot because, you know, you couldn't deal with a dissection and then you didn't think that you would uh, be a doctor and all of a sudden uh, you decided that this was the route that you wanted to take. This is huge. And I love the fact that you're studying something that we can all relate to, Dr. G. Burnout is so real. And I think, if anything, the last two two plus years has really demonstrated the impact, right, of how how much how much we can take, how each of us can take, and how much we cannot take, and at what place do we have to say, okay, we need to pause. And I want to talk about your new book. Can we talk about your new book? Um, yes, I would love to talk about my new book. All Thank right. You. I want to talk about your new book because <laughs> I want to talk about this line, which I thought was really powerful, and that is that all change is stressful, even the good ones. Okay. All change is stressful, even the good ones. You got to explain this to me. 
So, okay, Winnie, challenge me. What's the best change you can think of that like sounds like it shouldn't be stressful at all because it would only be amazing? Like there are a lot of choices, but what's a change you can think of that's like only good news? Good news. Oh, the only, okay, no more COVID. That to me is like the no biggest. No more COVID. Great, great example. So um, COVID happened and people prayed for, hoped for, worked for an end to the pandemic, right? Then along came scientists who said, we have created a vaccine. Now, however you feel about the vaccine, you can recognize that even while people thought like, oh, well, I really want an end to the pandemic, they also thought, wait, 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 wait. Even people like me, I'm, I'm a doctor, I'm very pro-vax. Even I thought, wait, 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 this feels scary to me. And this is because the brain has a million functions, but one job, our brains have one job and that job is to keep us alive. The good news is we are currently alive. The bad news is it makes our brains skeptical of all change, even winning a million dollars, even getting a big grant, even finding the relationship of your dreams, even having babies, whatever positive thing, ending the pandemic, our brain still says, wait, even while you might be feeling relieved, excited, happy, it has three reflexes to make sure that this change isn't going to be the thing that kills us. So it says, wait, what could we lose? Can we really trust it? And what's going to be uncomfortable about it? Those three reflexes, loss, distrust, and discomfort are our brain's way of keeping us safe in the face of change. Well, that, I mean, it makes sense when you you frame it that way, right? I think, but during that time, you're like, you're not even sure. I remember when we found out about the vaccine, right? Deciding and, and thinking, okay, well, you know, I did get the shot. I got the booster as well. But every time there was that fear and that concern, I think a lot of people feel that way today. So let's, let's talk about that, like your book. So what was the inspiration to this new book? What I was looking for, I am a family doctor, which means, you know, I thought about going into emergency medicine because I'd been an EMT and I love work on ambulances, but I'm in an emergency room. You go in, you see that doctor once, they do their best for you and they send you on your way and chances are with luck, you never see them again. As a family doctor, I'm in relationship with my patients. I hear what's going on. I ask them questions. They tell me things that they're experiencing. Together, we come up with a plan that, you know, with my expertise in medicine and their expertise in themselves and their own bodies, we think has a good chance of making things better. And then they go try it and they come back and we work on it some more. And I am really lucky to get to consult with corporations and speak on large stages. But one of the things that I find frustrating about that is it's a unidirectional relationship sometimes. Not so much consulting, but even there, I'm consulting with leadership, but I'm often handing resources to the people who work in those companies and never getting that feedback or able to pivot, like you mentioned, to be flexible and compassionate about what will or won't work for that person. So I wrote this book as a tool for adults to use. And at the end of every section, if you choose to, you can click the link or follow the QR code and come to my site and tell me how it went. And we can come up together with your next steps. Oh, I love that. So it's like a book, but there's engagement, which I think is critical, yeah. right? Because a lot of times we read these uh, books that provide a lot of value, but there's not an ask or an activity for us to do. So it continues that conversation. So it's almost like getting our own Dr. G, 
but on a digital platform in addition to the book. So let's talk about that. So what's the answer? Like when you think about all that's gone on during the last few years, so many people are experiencing burnout, right? It's still not back to normal. We have families that haven't seen you. I, I actually spoke with a colleague yesterday and she says, Winnie, you know, my family is in in uh, Canada, she says it takes three planes to get to see her family, her parents in Canada. So her kids haven't seen their grandparents now going on, you know, two plus years. And she says, what we do now is we simply FaceTime every day. What's the answer? Like for a lot of people that feel sort of overwhelmed and um, needing that little bit of nugget, what would you say? When we have to navigate change, and I defined resilience, right, as that ability to navigate change. It isn't actually that most people have faced one particular overwhelming change that they absolutely can't think of a single thing and they're totally overwhelmed and they're stuck. It's that, it's um, the proverb, the idea of death by a thousand paper cuts. It's that people have been overwhelmed. There's something coming from here and now there's something coming from here and then there's a big stressor and I can maybe, but what about the things coming from the other directions? People feel the word you used is exactly right, overwhelmed. What they need is to feel less winded, to be able to keep walking up these stairs, because we know that if we want to achieve more in life, have better relationships, stay in connection with our company, our mission, with our family, we need to be able to handle change as it comes. And yet they need to be in better mental health shape so that they don't feel as overwhelmed. This is not me saying that if someone is suffering from a mental illness, that they were just weren't in good enough shape. Mental illness is real. Mental illness chronically affects 18% of adults and 18% of kids. But mental distress, that feeling of overwhelm, that affects almost everyone at one point or another in their childhood and in their adulthood. The answer is to build our fitness so that we feel less winded by the changes that are coming at us and set stronger boundaries so that we are able to say when it's too much. So are you talking physical fitness or are you talking mental fitness when you say- I'm talking about mental fitness. The research that I did showed that when we say resilience, right? You might say to yourself, okay, yeah, I buy what Dr. G is saying. I'd like to be more resilient. But I asked that question, you know, what is that? And I gave a definition of the word, but the other research that I've done is to figure out what are the skills that make us more resilient? We used to believe about 20 years ago that resilience was just a trait. It was like your eye color. You had it or you didn't, or you had a certain amount of it and not much would change that. But all of the growth mindset work done by Dr. Carol Dweck and her colleagues has shown us that it's not just in academics that we can learn to learn. In resilience as well, we can learn to be more resilient in the face of change. There are eight skills that will push us towards more resilience. So. The reason I wrote the book the way I did is because I want to give people exercises, activities they can do that build any of those eight skills. And I don't want to tell you which one you need first or most. You're the expert in you. So I bring my expertise. These are the skills and these are the activities that will build this skill. You bring your expertise, the changes you're facing, the skills you already have, and the skills where you really feel like you have not enough of them right now, and they'd be super useful. I'll be right back with Dr. G in just a moment. Hi, I'm DC Marshall. Hi, I'm Mita Malik. We are the co-host of the Brown Table Talk podcast, where we discuss how to help women of color thrive in their workplaces. 
And we invite allies to join us to help women of color win at work. We have a seat waiting for you. Subscribe to Brown Table Talk wherever you enjoy podcasts. That's powerful. And that's great. So the eight tips are in her book. So Dr. G's book, definitely something. I, I love how you said that. I think it gives a lot of people hope, right? It's something that you can build upon. It's a skill that you can work on mental strength, right? So you don't get mentally winded. That's what I got from that too. So really important. I think, you know, all of us have different experiences and I see so many of our friends with us today. I'm sure you feel that. Like I just need a tool. I just need some things that sort of point me in the right direction. Plus, if anything else, we've also learned today from Dr. G is that we're not alone, that this is everybody. We're all feeling very much, very like burned out, overwhelmed, all those different things. But there is a solution. These are things that we can work on. And if we build on them, we can probably help those around us as well so that they can deal with this as well. So, you know, talk about this being a skill. You know, we talk about Dr. G, importance of a lot of things that it would we really feel strongly that should be in schools, right? Kids should learn personal finance. They should learn, you know, all these things. But I feel like resilience is something that children need to learn, especially children that have gone through this pandemic. Um, what are your thoughts on that? I think actually that our generation, and I also have four kids, so I'm thinking of my own kids and yours and all of the kids that I've worked with in schools and camps, for the kids who haven't lost a family member to COVID, they will actually end up likely stronger because of this experience than if they hadn't been through it. Now, please don't misunderstand. You know that that saying, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger? I hate that. What doesn't kill you usually just makes you miserable. That's not my point. My point is that this is a generation of people who've gone through a major disruption and upheaval while their adults were watching to see if they were okay and come alongside and strengthen them when they were having a hard time. So that the next upheaval or disruption that each of those kids face in adulthood, which is unlikely to be global like this one is, it's much more likely to be personal or in their family or in their community, they're going to already have some strategies that we are intentionally teaching to them that they wouldn't have had without this experience. I really believe that we can use this as an opportunity, not just to set our own good boundaries and strengthen ourselves, but to also say, okay, there are kids in our lives who will continue to face change. And so we can talk to them clearly about, hey, this was hard, right? What did you do? What was useful to you? And what else would be useful to you? Let's learn some skills so that the next time something hard happens or something changes, you feel less winded by it. I love that. That's powerful. Very, very good. Well, let's talk about professionals then. You know, we know um, executives at different companies. I know you work with a lot of organizations. What are you seeing? What are you hearing? I'd love to get your insight on, on, of course, resilience in the workplace. There are a couple of things I wanted to point out, but for your audience in particular, if you want to level up, you are inviting stress into your life. And that's not a bad thing. One of the misconceptions that we have as a society is that stress is always poison. Right. You might have heard that like stress is toxic. Stress is poison. When I was in medical school, they told us stress is the new smoking. Tell your patients to avoid it at all costs. I have no problem telling my patients to avoid smoking, but I can't tell them to avoid stress, especially people who want to level up in some way. Because remember, I said all change is stressful. That means 
applying for a new grant, applying for a new job, pitching a new client, deciding to offer a new service or to start coaching or to consult. Every single change is stressful. But if you don't change, you can never level up. You can't level up in your own philosophy. You can't level up in your work. You can't level up in your relationships. So leveling up invites stress. What I want is for people to develop the strengths, the skills that they need so that they look at that stress and say, okay, I can do that. Very much like if you decided to train for a marathon and I said to you, oh, first day run 10 miles, you'd be like, nope, first day run half a mile and then fall over. But if you train for it by, I don't know, month three, if I say, okay, we're going to run 10 miles on Saturday, you'd say, okay, I think I can. Does that make sense? It makes perfect sense. It's like every other skill that's important, but resilience is such an important skill. And I love that you're saying you're giving these steps because as you, you mentioned before, it's not like we are going to not continue on our journeys, right? We're still looking at growth as a positive thing. I think many of us can relate to wanting a career advancement or bringing that extra paycheck in. We want more opportunities and therefore we need to like arm ourselves and have these skills that you're talking about. Dr. G, I feel like what you're talking about today is something that almost should be provided to kids, you know, as they go into high school and they deal with AP exams and then they have to apply for college. And then that like, like these are so important to, um, you know, a successful adulthood. So this is great. So where can people go um, to learn more about the book? Um, the book you can find really easily. As a matter of fact, I'd love to invite you to come to my site. Even before you look at the book, I have a stress tracker on my website so that you can come and you can share a change that you're facing and what strategies you're already bringing to bear. I ask you some multiple choice questions, and then I'll tell you of these eight skills, which one is the one that I think would be most valuable to you right now in this problem that you're facing. And then I'll just give you two strategies that you could try right then to build that skill so that you can test this out and see if it makes sense to you. When you think about all of this change, when you think about it from a work standpoint, when you think about it as a professional, the other thing I want to point out is if we have this idea that stress is always poison, then if you stress anyone else out, you must be the villain. And when an employee comes to a supervisor or a leader and says, uh, yeah, that thing you asked me to do yesterday, you really stressed me out. We know what that means. In our society, what that means is you made some sort of leadership mistake. You presented it badly or you gave me something you shouldn't have given me. And leaders feel really confused by that because, but I, I asked you to do something so that we could level up our business or so we could get closer to our mission. That's what we're here for. When we start to recognize that stress isn't a poison, it's a tool. And like any tool, it can bash your head in if you don't use it well, but you can't build without it then leaders stop hearing you stressed me out as a condemnation and they start hearing it as a request for a little bit more support. And that is a totally reasonable thing. So when someone says to you, whoa, you know, telling me that we had their ta those taxes that had to get done or that that proposal really needed to be polished, that stressed me out. Instead of saying, oh, sorry, I'll back up, I'll reverse course, we can say, okay, I hear you. Change is stressful. How can I help? Or what support do you need? Or what else are you trying to let me know about? Or, and this is a really important skill for us in business, is empathy what's most valuable here? To say, 
Yep, I understand. It is really stressful to navigate this change. I appreciate your help with it. I love that. That's powerful. Dr. G, what else have I not asked you that, that you should be sharing with us? What I want to talk about is, is a little bit, I, I so appreciate you asking me about my book, but really what I want to stress to people is that we talked about how if our brains hear about a change or even the possibility of a change. And even if we might like, let's say I applied for a job, Winnie, and I'm super excited because I get the email that I got it. And if you're an entrepreneur, you might think of this as you pitched a new client and they send you an email being like, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm interested. Send that contract over. Even while you might be feeling thrilled, your brain also goes, wait, what could I lose? You know, am I going to lose my ability to serve my other clients well, or am I going to lose the relationships I have at my current job? Distrust. I got to read that email again. Did it really say what I thought it said? Was it really to me? Are they still thinking about it? What does that turn of phrase mean? and discomfort. I wanted this, but am I going to be able to communicate really clearly with this person? Uh, they're in a different time zone than me. Is that going to be hard? So I only told the hard part of the story. All of those feelings of fear and distrust and discomfort come from this part of our brain in the center called the amygdala. The way to quiet, you can't silence your amygdala because it's keeping you alive. So we need it. And you can't silence it even if you tried. But the way to turn it down a little bit is to get the front of your brain, the, the prefrontal ventromedial, uh, sorry, the ventromedial prefrontal cortex activated is by asking it a thinking question. And the way that this cycle of resilience goes from, okay, announcement of change, loss, distrust, discomfort, the next thing, the thing that turns the corner is choice. Remembering, you don't even have to list them first, just remembering that you have choices, that turns on the thinking part of your brain, which quiets the fear and distrust and discomfort part of your brain. So you ask yourself, wait, okay, what choices do I have? So to go to the job offer, well, I can choose whether or not I take it. I can choose who I tell about it and when I can learn a little bit more. I can find out how the person wants to handle the time zone issue. Okay. I have choices. I start to list those choices. The fifth part of the six part cycle is that I engage with those choices. I move forward on one or more of them. And that brings me to the last part, which is reunification. And reunification is not necessarily reunifying with my new job or with my new client. It's reunifying with myself. Remember we talked about resilience is the ability to navigate change and come through it the kind of person you wanna be, pointed towards your mission, behaving in ways that make sense to you. That's the reunification part. So all you have to do when you're feeling really stuck in that loss or distrust or discomfort is remind yourself that you have choices and then start to figure out what they are. Yeah, and figure out what they are. I love that. Remembering that you have choices. I think that's really, really key. You know, I think that I kind of relate that to a lot of what we're going through with the financial markets right now, where there's so many financial stresses and people are worried about their retirement, whether they're going to be able to send their kids to college and, you know, whether they need to take on a second job or look at another income stream. And I think one of the things I, I say is, well, a lot of them, um, this, this, like you said, there's choices, you have choices, but to remember that this can be temporary choices too, that you still um, can be in control, you can still feel like you're whole, and just because there's change doesn't mean it's forever. And I think that's what I heard from you, Dr. G, of you know those choices gives you like different rubber bands of you can always come back, right? Like that, that's what the unif reunification, I love this. I'm hoping I'm hearing this right, Dr. G, because I'm, I'm really embracing this right now. One of the things I hear you saying, Winnie, is that like, what about just waiting? 
and waiting is a choice. Right? Many of us, as we've struggled towards action with a mentor or something, have heard not making a decision is still making a decision, right? So, you know, when I look at uh, an investment and I think, oh, that's lower than it. Am I supposed to be doing something? Okay, I'm afraid. I'm afraid of loss. I have distrust. Did I put it in the wrong place? Am I? Did I make a wrong decision? Am I making a wrong decision now? Will I make a wrong decision later? And I feel uncomfortable. I start, okay. I have choices. I have a choice to wait. I have a choice to get more information. I have a choice to make a move. I can make a move with part of that investment, but not all of it. I can talk to someone I trust. And this is where we get into the resilience skills. Just as an example, a couple of the resilience skills are building connections. So who do I know that's an expert in this that I could reach out to and say, hey, could you give me a little guidance? Or just, you've been through this. Can you let me know that it will probably be okay? So that's one. Setting a goal is another resilient skill. So I can say, wait, what was my goal for this investment? This is a really long-term investment. And I know that if I leave my investments alone for 10 years, it's always to the good. And I can leave this alone for 10 years. So since that's my goal, I think waiting is the choice I want to make. It's in that listing our choices and figuring out which ones we want to follow that we really bring all these resilient skills to bear. Recently, you may have faced meaningful change in your life or know someone who has. Learning to face these stressors and convert them into motivation is a skill set that I know all of us hope to embrace. I hope our conversation today with Dr. G has sparked a new way of thinking and helps build your personal resiliency to help tackle these unexpected twists and turns. If this episode resonated with you or if you have questions for Dr. G or myself, please comment below and subscribe. I'd love to hear from you. And please join me again next week as we share another new episode of Yes Factor with you. Thank you and be well.